There's a lot that I want for you as brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ here. And if I could really overemphasize one thing is that uh, your desperate need to be in community. And if you are a student and you're on campus and you're in community, a Bible study, your believers are around you exhorting you, great. Keep going for it. But for those of you in here, students or non-students, you're not in Christian community and just you and your husband don't count. (laughs) Or you and your long-distance phone call relationship, Christian brother or sister back home, that doesn't count as much. We really want you in community. So we want to encourage you to jump into one of our ethos communities where people can love you and encourage you and build you up. And I I just cannot overemphasize that enough, to be in some community. And we are offering our ethos communities to you. And I think, hopefully, by the time we're done today, you will see the importance of being in community. Let's turn to the book of Matthew. Yes, we are still in Matthew. We have two more Sundays in Matthew. We've been going through the whole book. We saw the resurrection of Jesus last week. And now we're going to look at a couple events before we're done with Matthew. So let's all uh, stand one more time. We're in Matthew 28, and we're going to start at verse 11, and we will stop at verse 17. I know you want to keep reading, but don't. Here we go, verse 11. While they were going, that's the women who saw the resurrection of Jesus, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests and all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. You may be seated. You notice that we stopped right before the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. I am so excited to preach the Great Commission to you. you. You can't, I just, I don't think you can understand. Like, I am pumped up beyond being pumped up of encouraging you to go and make disciples of the nations. I'm ready to preach it, but not yet. I believe that some of you are not ready to receive that message. And if I preached it here this Sunday morning, you would listen politely because you're polite people but then you would not do anything about it. So before we jump into the Great Commission, we need to deal with this issue of why you may not act upon it. And I think the issue may be you you just have an an injury of sorts. I don't know if you've ever played sports before, but if you ever have a sports injury, it's not cool. I, I played tennis in high school and in college. And one of the reoccurring injuries I had was a shoulder injury. Now, I don't know if you know this. If you ever played tennis before, 
But if your shoulder doesn't work, there's no tennis for you. So I could show up to practice. I could listen to the instructor. I can listen to the coach tell me everything I'm supposed to do. But it didn't do any good. I wasn't going to go out there and do the backhand serve and forehand with the shoulder injury. I needed to be in rehab. I needed to go see the trainer, get it fixed, then get back out there and perform. Spiritually speaking, some of you are injured. You are not in the disciple-making business. You're not participating in the Great Commission. And one of the reasons that you are not participating in the Great Commission is because you have an injury of sorts. And the injury, for some of you, that we're going to talk about this morning is the injury of doubt. Or put another way, maybe a, a huge lack of faith. Like some of you are here this morning, and you're having a hard time just believing at all. So, yeah, I want to jump into the Great Commission. I want to get going. I want to just get traction. Come on, let's, let's go to the nations. But I really feel led by the Lord to stop this morning and deal with some of you and your doubts and, 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 your, and your faith struggles. Because whether you know this or not, we all face them at one time or another. We're we all going to end up with these faith struggles and doubts throughout our lives. And sometimes they're intellectual. And sometimes they're moral. And sometimes it's just because we're dealing with hard stuff. Some of you are here this morning and you have intellectual doubts. You have doubts about the Bible. You have doubts about Jesus. And so for some of you students, this is totally new. You came to campus on fire for the Lord and you listened to your professors talk about the Bible as a myth or your classmates talking about the Bible as a myth and it, and it kind of rocks your world. And, and right now you're struggling with intellectual doubts. And some of you, your doubts arise because of moral reasons. Because you feel something inside that contradicts the Word of God. And so if you... If the word of God is so right, then why do you feel so different than what it says? Maybe it's a, it's a sexual morality issue. Maybe you want to engage in premarital sex. Or maybe you want to leave your spouse. You feel these things, and the Bible is different than what you feel. And so your doubts arise in your mind. Maybe you don't struggle with either of those. But the most common form of doubt we all struggle with. And that is the struggle with life, because it's just hard. Some tough things have happened to you, and you find it hard to trust the Lord. If I interviewed you or counseled you, you would tell me your story, and chances are your story is hard. There are some tough things, and right now you are struggling. Now, I am not saying that you have to have your faith 100% before you make disciples. No, no, no. We fight the fight of faith, and we continue to fight the fight of faith. And while we're fighting the fight of faith, the struggle to believe, we are still investing in people and making disciples. Uh, I'm not, not saying you have to be perfect before you can start making disciples. No way. But what I am saying is that some of you this morning are stuck. You have a frozen faith. You have a little faith that's not getting any traction, not having any movement at all because you're not dealing with the doubts. You're not dealing with them intellectually. You're not dealing with them emotionally. And so you're stuck. And when you're stuck, you don't want to invest in anybody. 
And so this morning, I want to talk to you from the Word of God. Because unless we deal with this, next week on the Great Commission will mean nothing to you. You'll listen politely, but do nothing. So let's deal with our doubts. Let's face our faith struggles. And let's just be open about what's going on. We don't need to cover anything up. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's jump into Matthew again. It's going to be a little different this morning. It's not going to be my typical working through a passage. We're going to branch out a little bit beyond Matthew. But let's start in Matthew. Jesus has risen from the dead. Some women go um, from the tomb where he was raised, and they're, they're taken off. All right. Pick it up, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the, of the guard went to the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Now, if you notice, the women go and proclaim the good news of the resurrection while the guards go and tell the religious leaders the bad news of the resurrection. Last time we saw these guards, they were frozen in fear at the sight of the angel. Because they only had one job to do. The one job the guards had to do, it doesn't seem like it's a very hard job. Most of you could probably do it. Keep the dead body dead (laughs) in the tomb. Don't let anybody come and steal them. Don't let it get out. And they failed. And so they come to the religious leaders, and they talk about their failure. And what the religious leaders do, they have to scramble to come up with a plan. They have to scramble to come up with an alternative story. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You know what Matthew's doing? Matthew is saying, the story that has been spread among the culture, the Jewish culture, he's telling you how it came about. He's telling you how the alternative story to the supernatural resurrection of Jesus has been spread and explained away in a very natural way. And in order to make this story stick, this alternative story stick, that the disciples came and stole the body, that they throw out some bribe money. Let's make this alternative story stick. And it was the the story that was spread among the culture of the day. And so if the Christians talk about supernatural resurrection, the Jewish response or the response of the culture was, aha, the disciples came and stole the body. That is the alternative story. And I just want to kind of give you a heads up. Here's the heads up I want to give you. There are always going to be alternative stories to explain away the gospel. You've heard them before. I've heard them before. A, a, a downplaying of the Bible, a downplaying of the miraculous, and dismiss it as nonsense. And if people are throwing alternative stories at you, it's nothing new. We have an alternative story here right in the book of Matthew that was spreading among the Jews of that day. But sometimes when alternative stories come our way to explain the way the gospel, it, it kind of rocks our faith. A few years ago, maybe some of you were at our church uh, back in 2008, I preached a couple of sermons and did, did a study on Eckhart Tolle's book, uh, A New Earth. I don't know if you've even read that book. I wouldn't recommend you read it. It's, uh, 
It's a, it's a new age book of sorts that pretty much takes the Bible, mixes it with all types of other re- religions, and, and what comes out is, a, is just some new age mess. But as I was studying this and teaching Eckhart Tolle's uh, book and, and trying to show you how the Bible is just totally discrediting his book, I, I, I went on Oprah Winfrey's website and started a discussion group because she was really pushing uh, Eckhart Tolle, and she had this special with him. And so I went on her website, and I set up this discussion group, and I, I just said, look, I'm a pastor. I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus. And, man, you, you might as well just said, here's my target. <laughs> Come at me. And people were coming at me like crazy, and they were giving me alternative stories. They were saying, no, Jesus is not the other way, only way. There are lots of different religions that lead up to the same mountain. They were giving me alternative stories to explain away hell and say, no, no, hell is just hell on this earth. And, and they, were, they were challenging me with, 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 with saying, no, no, uh, Jesus is not a unique story. There are other mythologies that are very similar to Jesus. And so Christianity is just adopting this cultural mythology from somewhere else. And so it was, it was alternative story after alternative story. And it, was just, just, it felt like just hundreds of people just piling it on me. And, and it was challenging. It was really challenging. It was like, what, what do I believe? Do I believe this? Is, is the Bible intellectually legit? Is the story of the gospel of Jesus and his resurrection, is it real? And I was having some faith struggles. And maybe some of you have had these intellectual and philosophical doubts. And what do you do? This is what you don't do. You don't take philosophical and intellectual doubts lying down. You don't just say, oh, I'm struggling, and you don't do anything about it. No, when you start getting these intellectual doubts and hearing the alternative stories, you stand up and you go at them. You don't go at people. Don't go at people. Be all mean. But you go at them. You aggressively confront them with the truth, with the word of God, with what you know from God's truth, with power. You confront them. And I'm going to kind of just give you a little grid here, something I found very helpful several years back. I shared this with a few of you. Um, there's in, in a book called um, In Search of Confident Faith, Overcome Barriers to Trusting in God, um, Klaus Isler and J.P. Moreland give us like a four-step procedure to reduce doubting tendencies. And so I want to kind of share this four-step procedure to reduce doubting tendencies. It's in your bulletin, so you can take it home with you. I'm going to be just really quick with this. But let's, let's look at number one. I'll put it up for you as well. So number one, identify the source of the doubt, whether it's the evening news, movie, a conversation at work, a a classic one. Maybe you heard it last weekend if you're with your family over Easter. A family member will stand up and say, it's ridiculous to believe in God. So who's the source of the doubt? Well, it's, it's Uncle Joe when he's had too much to drink. He's just going off. Number two. Identify the particular assumption that stands under the source. Example, if it can't be tested by the five senses, you can't believe in it. You ever heard that before? You say, I've not seen God. And so since I have not seen him, then he, he doesn't, exist, doesn't exist. So the assumption is that if my senses can't perceive God, then he's not real. You ever heard that before? Like, he must not be real. Third thing. Raise doubts about the doubt. Challenge it. Example, I can't see my own thoughts, but I know them, 
So why should I believe in this principle? So raise doubts about that doubt. Like, well, my own thoughts, I know they're real, and yet there's no perception of them with regard to the five senses. And the fourth one, this is good, is replace the assumption with a more biblical one. Here's an example. For thousands of years, the brightest people alive have known God was real from the creation, Romans 1, even though they never saw him. So we can, in fact, know things that go beyond our five senses. What you can do, you can take this procedure, these, these four things to reduce doubting tendencies, and you can fight against intellectual and philosophical doubts. And, and let me just add, once again on the community piece, there are people in here that, I, I don't want to make it an intellectual thing, but there are people in here that, that are probably smarter than you, I know you think you're the smartest ever, but people that are smarter than you who have had the same issues, they had the same doubts, and they have, 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 have challenged them intellectually. We have scientists in our congregation who have had faith struggles at times, like maybe some of you right now. What I'm getting at is we have people for you to talk to. If you are doubting intellectually, philosophically, and you want someone to talk to, we have people lined up to talk to you that have worked through these issues over the years and would love to pour into you what they've learned to encourage you to fight against these alternative stories. So don't take them lying down. If you're struggling today, come, come see me. Go talk to someone else in our congregation. But there is someone for you to talk to who, who can give you truth and to help you and walk you through your doubts. And, and there's nothing you're going to say that's going to surprise us. We, we've all struggled with different things. It's okay to bring it up. So that is the intellectual, philosophical doubts. But what about the emotional ones? What about the experiential doubts that we all face? I mean, you've got the gospel and the Bible nailed down intellectually. You can write papers on it. And yet, you can still be struggling in your faith, emotionally or experientially, to trust the Lord. Well, let's keep going. Let's look at those. Verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I want to make sure you get the worship part first. So these are solid Jews... <laughs> falling at the feet of Jesus in worship. You just don't do that, by the way, if you're a Jew. You don't worship other people unless he's God. So they see that Jesus is resurrected. They see he's not like them. They worship him as the divine son of God. He is the one who died in a place for sinners, came back to life. He conquered sin, Seth, uh, Satan, and death. And he's the one they love, so they worship him. They bow down to him. But it, but it says there, some doubt it. Are you kidding me? You have the resurrected Jesus right in front of your face, and some doubt it. And first, let's figure out who, who, who are the some. I mean, it says in verse 16, now the 11 disciples, so that seems like the context is the 11 disciples, but it has been argued that there's probably more people here than just 11 disciples. Uh, you know from other verses that 500, at least 500 people saw Jesus resurrected. So maybe some of them are, are, are here as well. So you've got the 11 and 
some others. So we're not sure who exactly, the, but it's, a, it's the followers of Jesus who are doubting. All right. How should we understand this word doubt? Should we understand it like it's an intellectual issue? Like these Jews are trying to work through intellectually, philosophically, Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Maybe, but probably not. It's probably, I, I mean, not I'm not for sure on this, but it's probably best that you understand this word doubt it in the sense of the word hesitate it. It's like they see the resurrected Jesus and they're, they're hesitant in their worship. Some are worshiping him, but some others are doubting. They're, they're hesitating. And this word doubt, I'm not a great Greek scholar here, but this word doubt is used one other time in Matthew. And the other place in Matthew, it was uttered by Jesus. And the context is Peter walking on water, and then he freezes, (laughs) and then he sinks. And then Jesus says this to him in Matthew 14, 31. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt same word right there. So it's a little faith. It's almost like a, a frozen faith. You know, when something extraordinary happens and you're not quite sure how to respond, so you freeze. And it seems like that's the kind of doubt going on here. Peter's walking, 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 and he's like, oh my, what's going on? And then he sinks. It, it's a frozen faith. It's a, it's a faith that is stuck. And I wouldn't say it's an, it's an absolute unbelief, but it's it's, it's a faith that is stuck. It's, it's kind of like that, that man who once said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So the last picture we get of the disciples, either the 11 or the 500 in the book of Matthew, and just in this grade, the last picture you get of them is worship and doubt. Does that, does that sound familiar? Does, does that sound like your life? Like that's, that sounds like my life, this, this, this unbelievable paradox. Some of you experienced that inconsistency this morning. You're singing worship songs, and inside you're going, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure God can be trusted. I'm not sure God actually knows what's going on right now. And so you worship, and you doubt. And I think it's something we, we all struggle with in our faith. We all struggle with that. It's okay. I told my kids this week, we were doing family worship. I said, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to have doubts. You can talk about it. Don't cover it up. It's okay. But what I want to address, once again, is those of you who are stuck. There's no movement. There's no traction. You're just, you're just stuck. So I think it's best to point you to another person who was stuck. And this is where I want to finish our time up with a a totally different story. Another post-resurrection scene with Doubting Thomas. Remember that guy? So let's shift our attention away from Matthew and look at the book of John. I know this is crazy. We're actually turning our Bibles somewhere else. We rarely do this on Sunday morning, but John... Let's look at another post-resurrection account of Thomas. Now, before we read the story, 
I'm going to ask you a question, but don't answer. It's just I'm asking out loud. You know how that works. Here's the question. Why did Thomas doubt? Was it moral? Did he want to like go do all these, you know, wild partying and Jesus wouldn't let him and so he's doubting? No, it's not moral. You know that. Is it intellectual? You think Thomas has intellectual issues here? Really? He saw Jesus raise the dead. He's a God-fearing Jew. He's seen the miracles. You think he's having intellectual issues right now? Maybe he is. I think something else is going on. And this is where most of us come into play. Let's look at Thomas' story. It's amazing. Verse 24, John 20, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Okay, okay, okay. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> this is good. Thomas, you've got to have a little background on Thomas because you, you won't get him. if You, you won't understand this. You've got to understand Thomas. Thomas is a great disciple. I would love to have been Thomas in some sense. Let me tell you why. There was a time in Jesus' life where his disciples told Jesus, Jesus, if you go back there, they're going to kill you. And Thomas said this, let's just go with him and die with him. Like Thomas is the man. He's like, let's go die with Jesus. And Thomas he, he always wanted to be with Jesus. And so there was this time in John where Jesus said, um, I'm going to go away to my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you and take me to, to be with me. And Thomas is like, where are you going? We don't know how to get there. Because Thomas, he loved Jesus. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to, to die with Jesus. But now, Jesus is dead. Thomas gave his life, he gave his love, he gave his heart to Jesus only to seal, only to see Jesus killed and Thomas's hopes and dreams came crashing down. And so what's happening now? Thomas hears about the resurrection of Jesus from his disciples. And he doesn't believe it. And you know why? He doesn't believe it. He doesn't want to get burned again. And so I would say that Thomas's unique form of doubt could be classified as the doubt of shattered expectations. This is the doubt of shattered expectations. Thomas expected things to play out in a certain way. Jesus was not supposed to die. And if he died, Thomas wanted to die with him. But now Jesus is dead and Thomas is still alive. And at the cross, his world is blown apart. And so he hears about the resurrection. And he's like, you know what, guys? That's fine. I'm not going there again. There's no way. And I think the doubt produced by shattered expectations is so familiar among Christians. We have these expectations in life, and then they just get, kind of get blown apart, and we wonder, God, are you there? God, do you care? God, do you even love me? Are you with me? Are you for me like the Bible says you're for me? Because it certainly doesn't feel like you're for me. Johnny Moore, in his book, Honestly, 
really living what we say we believe, talks about the doubt that came when his parents got divorced. I know a lot of you have gone through divorce, some of you even recently with your parents. And most kids, they don't even think about their parents getting divorced. He said that his parents were like Superman and Lois Lane. They were so in love, but they turned into Batman and the Joker. He said his, his parents' relationship just got so atomic. His sweet, gentle mom would rip the phone off the wall and throw it at his dad. And his dad was this very mature businessman. He would get so angry and say the most hurtful things to his mom, and they would go just at each other. They hated each other. He couldn't believe it. And Johnny's like, God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? Do you even care? And you know what that's like when things are not working out for you. Have you ever had, if you ever got married and you're trying to have a baby and you're like, we're not able to have a baby. Why, why is that? Or, or if you're not even married and you want to be married, you say, God, why is no one coming along for me? Or maybe you are married and you're, it's just a, your marriage is just a mess. You're like, God, what is going on? Or you're in school, you're like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Or you have a job that you do not love. It's not what you thought. There's a lot of expectations that we can have in life. And when they don't play out the way we want, we say, God, what is up? I'm finding it hard to trust you. I'm finding it hard to be all out for you. And sometimes we get stuck. Thomas knows. He was there. And he was there for at least eight days. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I want you to notice what Thomas does not say. Thomas does not say, wow, I guess the disciples were right all along. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus, you really are alive. Isn't that something? He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas believes far more than the resurrection. He professes faith in Jesus as God. He worships Jesus as God. He moves from doubt to worship. Do you get what's going on here? All along, something was going on bigger than Thomas's expectations. I'm not sure what Thomas expected, but you got to admit, something is going on bigger than his expectations, that Jesus came to die on the cross for sinners Those who put their faith in him can be forgiven. Now he is risen from the dead. Something bigger than anything that Thomas expected has happened, and he is worshiping Jesus as God. And it may be hard to believe, but I want to tell you this. I'm not sure all that you're expecting in life, but God is doing something huge. He's doing something that is bigger than what you expect. And and sometimes, I I understand, sometimes your hopes and your dreams will be dashed. But I also believe that sometimes that you'll start to understand that God is doing more than all that you have ever asked or all that you've ever imagined. 
He has a grand sovereign plan that he is working out for his glory and for your good. And it's bigger sometimes than what you're expecting. And sometimes you feel like all your hopes are crashing down. But when we get to a posture where we submit to him and we say, okay, my Lord and my God. When we say that, we're saying, I place all my expectations, all my hopes and dreams upon you. You are my Lord. You are my God. You're working out your plan. And right now, while I'm alive, I kind of can see it. But a lot of times, I can't see it. And I won't see it completely until I'm with you. But for now, my Lord and my God, I worship you. I submit to you. You know, one of the most helpful things for me in my Christian life is when I see other people go through doubts and struggles and make it out on the other side. It really encourages me when I see people in a similar life stage as me, similar maybe even occupation as me, make it out through their faith struggles. This past week, uh, Pastor John Piper was speaking at Together for the Gospel. I don't know if any of you went to that. And I didn't hear his message. I got to read some of the transcript and some of his outline. And he has said some things this week that encouraged me that, wow, when he was my age, 40, he struggled with some some, some of the same things I struggle with. And he journaled about it when he was was 40. And he's at the end of his pastor now. He's about to, in a sense, turn his church over to someone else, and he's going to continue to minister elsewhere. Uh, But it's encouraging to see what he went through. Because he said this. I can't believe this. is John Piper said this. He stood up in front of 7,000 pastors and he said this. I am simply amazed that I've lasted as a Christian. Are you supposed to say that in church? (laughs) I'm simply amazed that I've lasted as a pastor. I'm simply amazed that I've lasted as a husband. I'm simply amazed that I've lasted as a father. And this is what he said in one of his journal entries. Just, it's, 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 he's expressing his emotional vulnerability. He said, right now I'm under attack by Satan to abandon my church, to abandon my post at my church. The last two years have left me feeling empty. The church is looking for the future vision. <laughs> I don't have it. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm so discouraged. I'm so blank. I feel like there are opponents on every hand, even when I know that most of my people are for me. I'm so blind to the future of the church. Now, notice some of the faith coming out here. I do not doubt for a moment your goodness or power or omnipotence in my life or in the life of the church. I confess that the problem is mine. The weakness is mine. The blindness is in my eyes. The sin, oh, revealed to me my hidden faults is mine and mine the blame. Have mercy, Father. Have mercy on me. I must preach on Sunday and I can scarcely lift my head. Are pastors supposed to say that? That's what we feel. We feel that too. Yeah, you feel it, right? Yeah, we feel it too. We have these struggles too. And then he said this. He says, there were days worse than that. Way worse than that. Days when the marriage was under attack. Days when the soul was so numb, I feared for my faith. And so here he is this past week looking back. And he says, I'm amazed. I'm still a Christian. 
I'm amazed. I'm still a pastor that's about to finish my post at his church. And what is so encouraging for me is that here is a guy who struggled at my age, and he was clinging to a God that was huge, that was working out a huge plan. And what did he end up doing? He clung to that God, and he passed through it, and he's still passing through it. God is working out this great plan. We don't always see it. Let me put this quote up by Charles Spurgeon. It's amazing. Charles Spurgeon said this, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. I can't always figure it out, but I can trust him because he's a good God. And he's working out a great plan for me and for all of you. But sometimes we can't see it. And if we're alone in here this morning, we certainly can't see it. And that's why I cannot overstress. You need to be around other believers. And you need to go into your group on campus, Bible study, ethos. Go into your group and drop the bomb. Go in with your struggles and your doubts and come in and say, I'm not sure God's real. My family is a mess. I don't know if God even cares. I am so lonely, and I don't know what God's plan is for me, and I am just struggling. Come into your group and just drop the bomb on your group, and you will see that people actually care for you. And people will say, oh, I was feeling that way last week. Let me tell you how I made it through. You need other believers speaking truth into your life to help you make it through these seasons where you get stuck. Someone needs to tell you, no, God's doing something big here. He's doing something you can't see or imagine. He's working for your good. He's working for his glory and to help carry you through. Let us pray. My Lord and my God, You are doing great and marvelous things, far beyond all that we can ask or imagine. And sometimes we struggle, we suffer. People have committed great sin against us. Evil has been committed against us. And we wonder what's going on. But Lord, you are there. You care. There is a great plan that you are working out. And sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. And so, Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters. If they have intellectual struggles... They have emotional struggles, even moral struggles and doubts that they would go to you and just lay it all before you. You already know. And that they would be open to their brothers and sisters in Christ and say, look, this is where I'm at. And help us as a church to be open and embracing of struggling brothers and sisters and to carry them through, to carry them through with the truth of your word, the truth of your sovereign goodness to carry them through. And I pray that anybody here this morning, Lord, help us to carry them through. Lord, give us wisdom. Make us sensitive to those who may be struggling. And may we be an open and compassionate community for your, your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.